I want to say right off the bat to a couple of people, thank you to, uh, I'm not going to mention names because I'll, I'll leave somebody out, but we had a number of volunteers here yesterday and throughout the week who helped uh, make Affordable Christmas possible, and it would not have been possible without your help. Um, your generosity was displayed through donations, your generosity with your time and, and being able to help, and just, um, it was a really good day yesterday. Um, yesterday was, was kind of one of those much-needed reminders for me. Um, I'll tell you, Christmas, this stretch of like 10 days is the busiest like 10 days of the year for me. And by the time Christmas is here, I'm ready for it to be over with. And so, and I know some of you all feel that way too. It's just like, it's just a lot of busyness. And so yesterday, just watching the good that was being done and our people being a part of that was a much needed reminder for me about what Christmas really is all about. And as Bobby mentioned in his communion meditation, just about the joy of, of giving and what God has given us and then being told to go and do likewise. And so if you were a part of that yesterday, thank you. Um, I, I greatly appreciate you. And because of your generosity, there were you know, 19 families that were served and 45 children that will get to, to have Christmas. So... And then, as Bobby also mentioned, you know, Friday night, we just saw devastation come across our state. And so uh, we're going to be working this week to try and make some connections with some churches in those areas about how we can partner to help. Um, we're trying to find some connections in Mayfield uh, with churches down there. And we've got a connection in Camelsville that we're going to reach out to. But, um, but we'll be passing along information about how we can, as a church, help. Um, because it's going to be a long, long recovery for a lot of those communities. Uh, especially if you saw the, the devastation in Mayfield and in Bowling Green. You know, those are just, it's, it's going to take a, take a while. So, so I'll, we'll be sending out some information this week on how, as a church, we can help be a part of that. We're in week two of our series, uh, Christmas series, Hope for the Holidays, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but you are hardwired for hope. You, you don't live by instinct. You, you don't. You might think you do, but you really don't. Every decision that you make, every choice that you make, ev every relationship that you have, every situation that you find yourself in in life, they are all fueled and motivated by hope. Your, your story, the story of your life is, is a hope story. Your, your happiest moments our hope moments. Your, your saddest moments are, are moments of, of hope destroyed or hope dashed. You're, you're always looking for hope. You're always attaching the hope of your heart to something. And, and here, so, so if that's the case, we probably ought to know what hope is. And so here's what hope is. Hope is always an object or an, or, or an expectation. Hope is always an object and an expectation. You're always hoping in something. You're always asking that something, that whatever it is you're hoping in, to deliver something to you. That's, that's hope. That's what hope is. Hope is always an object or an, ex uh, an expectation. We tend to look, though, for hope in all of the wrong places. We look for hope where it can't be found, and so because of that, we're often left disappointed. We're often frustrated. We're often confused because we want, we want to hope in things that just can't give us hope. So I want you to grab your Bibles and flip over to Isaiah chapter 59. I Isaiah chapter 59 is where we're going to camp out this morning and this is a brilliant passage about hope. It's, it's, it's really a brilliant passage. And the reason I think it's brilliant is because it's written in one of the darkest moments in, in the nation of Israel. In all of their history, this is one of the darkest moments. And, and so before I describe to you the, this moment, I, I want to ask you this question so that we kind of are all going in the same, same way. We're all nodding in the same direction. I want to ask you this question. When life is hard for you, 
When, when life is hard for you, when it's difficult, when it's confusing, when you're dealing with the unexpected, when your story is not what you would like your story to be, where do you turn for hope? Where do you run for hope? Where, where, where do you run for comfort? Where do you run for security? What, where do you run and hide? What is your functional hope in? The, the children of Israel, they'd been in captivity in Babylon for a long time, and they've come back now to Jerusalem when this is written, and they get to Jerusalem, and it's a mess. It, it's just an absolute mess. There are no city walls. There, there's no more temple. There's no central government. There's no enforceable set of laws. There, there's uh, no obvious leadership. There's no justice. There is violence in the street. There is massive poverty. There is complete, fundamental, societal breakdown. It is a dumpster fire. I mean, dumpster fire. It's a mess. And in that darkness, there's this brilliant discussion of hope. Maybe one of the most brilliant discussions of hope in all of Scripture. Because in these, because when we live in those dark moments, your true hope, your your real hope, it will be exposed. And, And your true real hope, it will either come through for you or it will deeply disappoint you. It will always do one of, the two, one of those two things. Whatever your hope is, it will be exposed in dark moments, and it will either come through for you or it will disappoint you. And so I want to outline this chapter for you because I think that's going to be helpful. And it divides itself into four sections that lead us to where real hope, where true hope can be found. And the first section begins with a false charge in verse 1. It's four sections, and the first one is just a real short. Verse 1, it's a false charge. Verses 2 through 8 are a divine accusation. And so when God accuses you of something, you should probably listen, right? If God accuses me of something, I should probably listen to him. If God accuses you of something, you should probably listen. Verses 9 through 15, they contain a very important confession. And finally, in verses 16 through 20, we get God's answer. It's it's divine intervention. And and before we unpack Isaiah 59, I want to do one more thing. I want to say four things about hope that we're going to find in this passage. Here's the first thing. Is that the Christmas story, the Christmas story itself is a story of hope. This story of of a baby in a manger that, that we celebrate, it's a story of hope. It's about hope created. It's about hope lost. It's about hope restored. And the second thing that I want to say about hope, and it might be a little bit confusing at first, but but it'll make sense as we unpack this passage, is that the doorway to hope is hopelessness. The the doorway to hope is hopelessness. The the only way that you're ever going to find true hope, only find real hope, is to give up on all of those places where where you've tended to, to put your hope, where you've tended to look for hope to deliver for you. The doorway to hope is hopelessness. The third thing. For, for hope to be reliable, to be trustworthy, to, to be hope, it has to fix what is broken. Hope must fix what is broken. It, it has to address the biggest, deepest, darkest dilemmas of our lives. Because if it doesn't fix what's broken, then why do we hope in it, right? It's like we, we know right off the bat it's not going to work. It's useless, right? So hope has to fix what's broken. The last thing, the fourth thing, is that hope is not a situation. Hope is not a situation. It's not a location. It's not an experience. Hope is a person. And his name is Jesus. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to start at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is answering a charge that God's people are making against him. Um, You see, and this, we, we... think, well, what would you accuse God of? Well, the same things that we all accuse God of, because it often happens to us. Because when life isn't working, when we're suffering in some sort of way, when we're disappointed in some sort of way, when we, the comfort that we seek is not found, when it's, uh, when it's 
when it's interrupted, it's very tempting for us to bring God into the court of our judgment and to, and to ask, God, where are you? God, where are you? You ever ask that question? You don't have to raise your hand, but you ever ask the question, hey, God, where are you at in this? I, I would like to know, God, wh- what, what's going on? Where, where's your faithfulness at? Where's your grace at? Where's your love? I thought you were near to me. I thought you, were, I thought you answered my prayers. God, where are you? Ever been there? That's exactly where the Israelite people were in this moment. It's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, God, where are you? And here's what's so devastating about this, about this accusation, about this, this judgment that we make about God. When you allow your heart to begin to question God's wisdom, when you allow your heart to, to begin to question His goodness, when you allow your heart to begin to question God, God's presence and His faithfulness, you know what you do? You don't run toward Him for help. You quit running toward God for help because why would you run toward something that you have begun to doubt? If you, if you doubt God, if you doubt His faithfulness, if you doubt His presence, if you doubt His love, you're certainly not going to run to Him for help. And the degree that you have convinced yourself that God is less than faithful to His promises, that God is less than loving, that God is not as near as you thought He was, is the degree in which you'll quit running to Him. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so God says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. What's going on is not a sign that my hands are too short to reach you, that my ears are too dull, that I can't hear your prayers. That's not it at all. I'm not the problem is what God is saying. In fact, if you look in other places in the Old Testament, what's going on in the lives of these people is the exact opposite of that. Flip over to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, the Old Testament prophet, it's essentially a poem. And in that chapter, it's a poem that has this refrain of again and again and again. But It says, but you have not returned to me. It says over and over and over in the chapter, you have not returned to me. What God is saying is, I have brought these difficulties into your life in order to pry your hands open of the things that you have held on to, of the things that you have put your hope into, the things that that are causing you to keep you from running back to me. These difficulties, they're not a sign of my unfaithfulness. In fact, these are are signs to, to get your attention. These are, these are signs that, in fact, I am near to you. They're, they're actually tools of uncomfortable grace. Think about that, tools of uncomfortable grace. God's grace often comes to us in, in uncomfortable forms, doesn't it? That, that's exactly what's going on here. God says, God says, I love you. I'm seeking to wrap my arms around you. I'm seeking to, to bring you back. I'm seeking for you to return to me in, in real, true, living faith. And so I've brought you through difficulty, not because I don't love you, Not because I can't help you, not because I don't hear you, not because I'm too weak, not because I don't care. In fact, it's precisely the exact of that. I have done so precisely because I love you and because I am near and because I want you to return to me. You've got it all wrong. It's a misplaced charge. And I'm sure in a group of this size of people, you have been sometimes tempted to question God. Tempted to doubt God, tempted to to doubt His goodness, tempted to wonder if He is near you or if He hears you, right? And I just want to say, I think that's a misplaced charge. I think it's a misplaced charge. And this misplaced charge that we find in verse 1 is followed by divine accusation. In fact, it's a brilliant diagnostic. If you look at verses 2, we'll start there and, and work our way through it. It says this, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And then it goes on to describe the real problem. And here's what I like to think. I like to think that my biggest, my deepest problems in life are outside of me. They're not inside of me. They're outside of me. They're they're problems of situations. They're problems of locations. They're problems of relationships. I like to think that, you know, hey, I'm one of the good guys, right? And God says, no, 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 I'm not the problem. Let me tell you what the problem is. You're 
the problem. The problem actually exists inside of you. It seems comforting to say, hey, I'm not the problem, right? That, that's kind of our, our culture's mantra. It's not me, right? It's everybody else. It's not me. It's comforting in that. In fact, I'll say that's why I think people like protest. We've, we've seen plenty of protest in the last year and a half in, in America, right? And you'll never find somebody at a protest that's carrying a sign around with an arrow pointing down that says, hey, I'm the problem. You never see that, right? Because protests are designed for you to be able to point your finger and say, ha ha, it's not me, it's you. It's something wrong with you, right? And I'm not saying that there aren't reasonable things to protest, but, but our culture, our world, exists. In, we, we exist in a world where it says, hey, I'm not the problem. In this passage of Scripture, clearly God is saying, God, I'm not the problem. God's saying, you are the problem. Because at the base of all of those things that we think are problems, what do we find? We find people, right? We find people. Think with me for a minute. There's no such thing as a bad marriage. There's no such thing as a bad marriage. And I know maybe one or two of you are thinking, I, I've been in one, right? Like I know there's no such thing as a bad marriage. If something happens to my marriage, it has to involve me, right? Hey, how did I get in this bad marriage? It's me, right? Like that's just, It's just craziness to think that, that somehow I'm in a bad marriage that I didn't have anything to do with. That, that's, that's not how, that doesn't make any sense. A bad marriage is a bad marriage because people in the marriage are doing bad things. At the bottom of a bad marriage, what do you find? You find us, right? What about a dangerous neighborhood? No such thing as a dangerous neighborhood. Neighborhoods have never done anything bad. Never. You've never been hurt. I guarantee you've never been hurt by a neighborhood. But why are neighborhoods so dangerous? Because there are people in their neighborhoods who do evil, violent, dangerous things. At the base of a bad neighborhood, what do you find? You find us, right? Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, they used to have this great old school Italian mayor. He, he was a bit of a thug and everybody loved him, sort of a mob type guy. And His name was Frank Rizzo. And he was a, a take no prisoners type mayor. And, and he, he was the guy, kind of guy that he did not understand the concept of politically correct. In fact, he was fundamentally politically incorrect all of the time. That's just how he operated. And he would have this Tuesday afternoon press conference that everybody in Philadelphia would just stop and listen to. They, they loved to listen to this guy. And really, these, these press conferences, they, they, were, they were really kind of comical. And so everybody in Philadelphia, they would just stop and, and whatever they were doing to listen to his press conference. And one day, there's this young, noble reporter who, who you know, he's got these, all of these high aspirations. He's going to ask all of the tough questions. And, and he's, he's just, he's a little green behind the ears, though, a little wet behind the ears. And, and so he steps up to the mic and he asks this question. He said, what are you going to do, Mayor, about all of the, the crime in the streets of Philadelphia? And Mayor Rizzo, he stood up to the microphone and he said, the streets in Philadelphia don't commit any crime. It's done by people. Next question. I mean, he's right. The streets have never committed any crimes. People do. There, there's no such thing as a corrupt government. The institution itself is not a problem. The problem is the people in the government who, who use their power for personal gain and don't actually exercise their authority for the personal welfare of, of its citizens. You get to the bottom of a corrupt government and what do you find? You find us, right? And the minute you sit under God's, God's charge, the minute you realize that he's saying what, what he's saying, it's a, it's a brilliant diagnostic. We're the problem. We, we've taken God's beautiful and glorious and wisely created institutions, and we've made a mess out of them. It, it's us. And you know what that means? It means that you can't find hope in any of those things. You can't find hope by running to a new, to a new location. You can't find uh, find hope by running to a new situation because guess what's there when you get there? You. 
You can't run away from yourself. I don't know if you've ever figured that out yet, but you can't run away from yourself. It doesn't matter how far you go, how fast you run. When you get to the end of the run, guess who's there? You. So you can't find hope in any of those things. It can't be found because God's right. His diagnostic is right. And you see, the problem, that, that, the problem is, is that there's something inside of me that, that lurks inside of me that's dark and it's dangerous and it kidnaps my thoughts and it diverts my desires and it distorts my, world, my words and it drives my behavior. And, and the prophet here, he uses three words to, to, to describe this. He says it's iniquity and transgression and sin. That first word, iniquity, it, it means moral uncleanness. I, I'd like to think that I'm pure, but, I, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not pure. My motives aren't always pure. My desires aren't always pure. My, my purposes aren't always pure. My, my thoughts aren't always pure. There's moral uncleanness inside of me. The, the second word that, that Isaiah uses is the word transgression. And transgression is it's high-handed rebellion. It, it's willingly stepping over boundaries that, that are put in place that you know are there. And, and you just step over them because you don't really care. I, I step over the boundaries of God's rules because I don't care in, in that moment. It's that moment when you, you park in the no parking spot, even though you see the sign, right? It's in front of you, and you say, oh, I'm not supposed to park there, but I'm going to park there anyway. You do it. Why? Because you don't care, right? If you're a husband and you've yelled at your wife this week, you didn't yell at your wife because you were ignorant that it was wrong, did you? You did it because in that moment you didn't give a rip about what was right or what was wrong. There was something that you wanted, and so, so you yelled at her. If you cheat on your taxes, you don't cheat on your taxes because you're ignorant that it's wrong. You cheat on your taxes because at, at that moment you don't care about what's right. You don't care about it. So you willingly step over those boundaries because you want something else. The third word that Isaiah uses is the word sin. And sin is falling short of the mark again and again. It's pulling back the arrow and the bow and arrow as far as I can. And every time it just falls short of the target. So because there's iniquity in me, and, and because there's transgression inside of me, and because there's sin inside of me, I make a mess out of God's good creations. You can't just blame situations, and you can't just blame locations, and you can't just blame other people, because at the bottom of all of those things is what? At the bottom of all of those things is what? People, right, us. And the truth is, is that you'll never find hope in any of those things. You'll never find hope in any of those things if you don't listen to God's accusation. Well, that accusation that God makes here, it's followed by confession. Look at verse 9 and, and following verses. It says this. It says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope for those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. You know what I've just read to you? I've read a description of people who have completely lost their way. It's a description of, of, of when you're in that moment when, you, when you've lost your way and all of a sudden it's like somebody just flipped the lights off on your life and it's just completely dark. It, this is a picture of people who are just groping along a wall. You ever go into a room and you know the light switch is somewhere on the wall, but you can't find it, and so you just kind of pat your hand around the wall to kind of get you going in the right direction until you finally find the light switch? I do it in this room all the time. I should know that the light switch is right on the other side of, of this door. But yet I, I go in there every time, and I'm looking for the light switch. I can't find my way. It's dark in there. That's what this is a picture of. 
when, you, when you've lost your way. And when you've lost your way, you're at a very significant moment of decision. Because you will either point the finger at somebody else, or you'll make the confession. That, that's actually what happens next, if you notice what happens in verse 12. Uh, verse 12, it says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities are transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. They're saying, God, we accept it. I accept it. I understand what the problem is. The problem is me. It's me. And once you've gotten to that place where, you, where you're saying, hey, I am, I am the problem, you know what? You are now in an utterly hopeless place. You're in an utterly hopeless place because what you're saying is, I've got a big, deep, abiding problem that I can't solve, that I can't fix because I can't run from a situation because I can run from a situation and I can run from a location and I can run from a relationship, but I can't run from me, right? Just like I said just a minute ago, you can run as fast as you want, as far as you can, but when you get there, when you get to the end of that run, guess who's there? You, right? You always show up at the end of your run. You cannot run from you. So there's, there's this hopelessness. This is, God, I've got a big problem that I can't solve. And that hopelessness, that hopelessness is the doorway to real hope. That is the, that's the doorway to real hope because it tells you not only is it hopeless for you to hope in yourself, but it's hopeless to hope in anybody else too. Because all, they, because all of those people, they all suffer from the same condition you do. And all of these locations and all of those situations and all of those places where you would run to, you know what? They are all populated by people who are just as desperate and just as hopeless as you are. There is no hope to be found. And it's only, and it's only when you give up on that horizontal hope that you're ready to find hope where hope can be found. So let me just ask this morning, have you, have you given up on, on all of those other hopes? Have you given up on all of those horizontal hopes, those hopes that, that we tend to run to? Have you given up on all those? If, if you would say, if only I had blank, and then you just fill in the blank. If only I had blank, then my life would be whatever. Fill in the blank for you. Have you given up on all of those hopes? Because I can tell you, for some of you, it's false hope. It's false hope because you think that somehow some situation, some location, some person, some relationship is going to be your personal Savior. It's going to be your Messiah. It will give you the life and the peace and the security that you're longing for, that you're seeking. But listen to me on this. Creation, everything in creation has no ability whatsoever to be your Messiah. It does not. It can't. No person can ever be your fourth member of the Trinity. It's just not going to happen that way. I've heard no telling how many women say this. They'll say something like, all I ever wanted was for a man to, that, that would make me happy. Any women, don't raise your hand, but you, women say, all I ever wanted was just for a man to make me happy. And you know what I, what I think when I hear women say that? I think, man, that man is toast. He's toast. Because that man doesn't have the ability to produce that for you. He can't. He, he should nourish you and he should cherish you and he should serve you and love you. Of course, he should do all of those things. But he cannot be the source of your happiness. It will never work. You know what a biblical view of marriage is? It's a flawed person married to another flawed person living in a fallen world. Encouraged yet? Ready to get married? But, but with a faithful God. So some of you, you've got to abandon hope. You've got to abandon all of that stuff because you're not going to meet a person who's going to give you life. You're not going to get a job that will make your life worth living. You're not going to own a possession that's suddenly going to give you all of the happiness that you've ever sought after. You're not going to have an experience that's going to fulfill you. None of those things will ever do that. It really is hopelessness. 
And it's hopelessness that begins to open the doorway for me to have hope. Look at the brilliance of, of where this passage goes next, starting the second half of verse 15. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Here's what God is saying. God's, God is saying, look, he looks around and he says, hey, there, there is no horizontal place for you to go. There's no, there's no horizontal hope to be found. No, no one is able to give you any of the things that you're looking for other than me. You, I'm the only one that can do what you're seeking for. And in light of all of this disaster, in light of all of this lostness, in light of all of the rebellion and the transgression and the sin and the iniquity, look at what God does next. Because he doesn't turn his back, he doesn't walk away, he doesn't say in, in his righteous anger, and he would be justified, justified if he did this, to just say, hey, I'm, I'm done with all of you, I'm going to wipe you out. He doesn't do that. Here's what he does. It says, then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Whenever you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, that's one of the names of, of, of Jesus. That, that's one of the names in the Old Testament for Jesus. God is saying, now that you're at this moment where you utterly have no hope, where you are completely hopeless, you've got nowhere to look, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you hope. I'm going to send you hope. And it won't, be in a, it won't be in a situation. It's not going to be in a human relationship. It won't be a location. I'm going to send you hope in a person. And his name is Jesus. Hope is going to come. That's the Christmas story. That, that's the Christmas story. That the Christmas story is a story of hope coming. That, 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 that's why the angels sang all of the glorious songs. That's why the, the, the wise men came to worship. That's why the shepherds were blown away. Because hope had invaded the earth in the person of Jesus. Hope had come. Hope had been so long lost. Hope had been destroyed. And now it was returning in the person of Jesus. And that promised hope. That, that promised Messiah, it, it, he would bring two things with him. He would bring justice and grace. Look at the verses that follow. It says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the, from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. This God is going to deal with evil. That's what God's saying here. I'm going to deal with evil. He's going to punish wrong. Evil will be repaid. And the words here, they're, they're graphic word pictures. They, they should bring to us terror and comfort. And I know those are, those are kind of two things that don't really go together well, right? But, but they should make you uh, afraid, but they should also comfort you at the same time. Why? Because it's very clear that the prophet Isaiah is saying that this, this world is a moral world that's ruled by a holy God who takes sin very seriously. Sin is serious. Sin is, sin is evil. Sin is disastrous. Sin leads to death. And this is a holy God that will never say, it's okay for you to sin. It's okay for you to transgress. It's okay for you to have iniquity as long as it makes you happy. I'm fine. No, that's not what God says at all. No, this is a holy God who hates sin. He will not tolerate it. He will punish every sin. But you see, the problem with me is I don't always see sin as sinful. We don't always see sin as sinful. Sin doesn't always look evil to me. If you're a man and you're at the mall and you're, you're lusting, you, you don't actually see danger at that point. What you see is beauty, right? If you're a teenager and you're, you're rebelling against your parents by doing something that they don't want you to do, you're not feeling the danger of sin at that moment. You're not seeing that as evil. What you're, what you're feeling is that buzz of temporary independence. 
But it's very clear that this is a God who is absolutely perfectly committed to justice. Sin will be dealt with. But there's comfort in these words too. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't, those words don't sound all that comforting. In fact, they, they, they sound kind of terrifying. Here's the comfort. You would not want to live in a world. You would not want to live in a world that was ruled by someone who didn't care about justice. You wouldn't. You wouldn't want to live in a world where the, where the person ruling the world was incapable of being angry with evil. There, there, there's a way in which God's righteous anger and His holy justice is the hope of the universe. God's anger with sin, God's commitment to justice means that He won't rest until every sin is, is defeated forever. That, that He will not relent, He will not quit until every molecule of sin is delivered out of every cell of every human heart, of every single one of His children. There will be a moment. There will be a moment where sin will be no more. And I don't think we fully grasp that, that concept. There will be a moment in time where sin's not going to exist anymore. There will be a moment in time where we will go to a funeral that we will actually want to go to, the funeral of sin, because sin will die and we will live forever. And I don't know that we always get all that excited about that. We don't understand that. We, we don't get our minds wrapped around that picture. But I think, we would, I think if we did, we would be a lot more excited We'd be a lot more excited about the hope that we have in Jesus. But, but I'm going to tell you, I look around all the time. I look at our world. I look at our church. And I'm just going to be honest here. I look at our world. I look at our church. And I, and I see a lot of times that we're not excited about the hope that we have in Jesus. We're just kind of playing the part, going through the motions. We, we, we sing the songs. We do our good deeds. And we say, yeah, yeah, we love Jesus, right? And I'm just telling you. That if we fully understood that there's going to be a time when sin is gone and we as a result of sin being gone are going to live forever, we would be more excited about the hope that we have in Jesus in this world and not just in the world to come. There will be a day where sin is defeated forever. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more evil, no more of all of the things that we see in our world that we wish didn't exist anymore. That day is coming. But, but God doesn't just send His Son to come armed with justice. He comes armed with grace. And this is the beauty in that. Look at these words. He says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. I'm going to send a Redeemer. That's what God says. Redemption is such a beautiful term. To, to redeem means to buy something back. It, and this is God saying, I'm going to send my son and, and he's going to live on your behalf the perfect life that you couldn't do. He's going to, he's going to pay the, the price, the perfect price that you couldn't pay. He's going to give up his life. The, the, he's going to suffer the death that you deserved to, to die. And he's going to do all of that. And all of that is going to satisfy God's anger. God is not going to be angry with me anymore because of what Jesus has done. And then... And then he's going to rise again and he's going to conquer death so that, we, so that he can give to us eternal life. And so by his life and by his death and by his resurrection, his righteousness is now given over to our account. So you can stand before a holy God who, who is going to punish every sin and he's going to punish it with death. You can stand before a holy God unafraid. Unafraid of his wrath and, uh, and, and have him wrap his arms of acceptance around you and invite you into an intimate and personal relationship with him. Because sin no longer separates you from him. That's redemption. 
And verses 16 through 20, it's just written you know, thousands of years before Jesus, but they are a prediction of, of the cross of Jesus. There, there's, this is an, actually an announcement of, of the cross because on the cross of Jesus, Christ, the, the holy justice of God and the amazing grace of God, they come together, they, they meet there on the cross. Because in that moment, the, the justice of God is imposed against Christ. He, he bears the anger of God. He takes on the penalty that, that is ours. He takes, he takes on everything that was deserved for us. And the grace of God explodes in abundant forgiveness and mercy. On the cross, the one who, who is hoped, who, who is the hope, brings together the justice of God and the grace of God. And hope is returned because of that moment where justice and grace meet. And it gives us the one thing that we need the most. Help with our deepest, darkest problem, sin. You see, these old, these old Testament saints, they were, they were living in the messiness between the already and the not there yet. Already they had been redeemed from Egypt. Already the law had been given. Already the prophets had spoken. Already the glory of God had lived in the center of the world, uh, in the center of the people of Israel. But not yet had the promised Messiah come. They were living in the messiness of, of, of the middle and they were holding on to hope. And you and I, we live in, in, in a middle uh, of that as well. We live in the middle of the already and the not yet. Already Jesus has come to, to the world the first time. Already he has lived. Already he has died. Already he has rose again on our behalf. He's lived and he did, died and he did all of that. Already the, world, the word has been given. Already the spirit of God has been given. But not yet do we live in that final kingdom. Not yet has sin been completely defeated. And in the messiness of, of life, of the, of the already and the not yet, you're going to reach out for hope somewhere. You're going to reach out somewhere for hope. But hope can only be hope when it's placed in the person of Jesus, who not only enters your difficulty in this moment, but promised to place you in an eternity where there will be no sickness, no, no suffering, no sin. And we will live with him in a place of absolute peace and righteousness and joy forever and ever and ever. And here's the thing. I want to close with this. Here's the thing. If he has guaranteed for you a place in eternity, then he must have also guaranteed for you all the grace that you need along the way. Because if you didn't get that grace, you would never arrive in eternity. You wouldn't. So the promise of future grace is also a promise of grace in the here and now. It's a promise of present grace. And that's reason for hope. Because no matter how troubling our situations are, no matter how difficult our locations are, no matter how hard the, the people that are around us are to deal with, we can wake up in the morning and we can say, I have met hope. Hope has invaded my life in the person of Jesus. There is hope in my world. Hope has come and it's going to come again. And it will deliver me out of the messiness between the already and the not yet. And that's reason to hope. Let me pray for us.